Let us pray. Father, as we look at this last of the seven churches, open our hearts that we might take your word wisely and seriously. And as it applies to us, that you might correct our hearts to bring us closer to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. We're going to take a look at the letter to the last of these churches. Once again, the Lord adapted his words to give relevance to the city in which the assembly was located. In this case, Laodicea, known for its wealth, benefited from its position on a trade route to become one of the most important and flourishing commercial cities of Asia Minor in banking, the manufacture of a black wool cloth, and the exportation of a special eye salve at its great medical school. It was located near Hierapolis, known for famous hot springs, and Colossae, known for its pure cold water. But archaeology shows that the Odysseus aqueduct probably carried water from hot mineral springs some five miles south, which would have become tepid by the way by the time it reached the city, and because of the calcium carbonate in it, tasted chalky. It was also on the fault line for earthquakes, as we discussed concerning Philadelphia last week, and in 68 AD. The town was completely destroyed. The pride of the inhabitants caused them to decline imperial assistance to rebuild the city, and they restored it from their own wealth. So Jesus asked John to write, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus used these titles for himself to correct a heresy that was prevalent among the Laodicean church as it was in Colossae, that Christ was a created being, not God. In fact, that is why Paul concluded his epistle to the Colossians with, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nymphia and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. That's Colossians 4, 15 to 16. This was written about 60 AD, and John is writing 30 years later, and the situation hasn't changed. Jesus calls himself the Amen, a biblical expression signifying certainty and truth. When we close our prayers with Amen, we are stating that what we just prayed was the truth. In Isaiah 65:16, Yahweh is called in Hebrew the God of Amen, truth. Jesus is the ultimate Amen. He says he is the faithful and true witness, completely trustworthy and the perfectly accurate witness to the truth of God. In John 14:6 and 7, Jesus said to Thomas, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Jesus also calls himself the beginning of the creation, which can also be translated originator of creation. Again, John 1, 1-4 says, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. As a man, he had a beginning, but as God, he was the beginning. Jesus continues in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. The usual interpretation is that Jesus was saying they were either believers, hot, or unbelievers, cold. But who was Jesus talking to in this letter? In fact, this whole book of Revelation, the seven churches, his seven churches, including this one at Laodicea. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation 1.20 He is not teaching to unbelievers. He's teaching believers his church. So where is the cold and the hot? Normally when I see words like that, I want to go back and find where else they are used to get a sense of their meaning. But I hit a block because the Greek for these three words, cold, hot, and tepid, occur only here in Revelation, nowhere else, except for Matthew 10.42, where cold is used for offering the weary disciples a cold, refreshing cup of water. Let me ask you, you've been working outside on a real hot day and someone brings you a glass of tepid, chalky water. How do you feel? Or they walk out with a glass so cold the condensation covers the outside of the glass. Now how do you feel? In a restaurant, you order a cup of hot tea and the one they bring you is so tepid it wouldn't melt the sugar you want to add. What do you do? Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, you guys, you're not refreshing. That is cold. Building up in the spirit, your fellow Christians. You guys, you're not full of zeal, hot in the spirit to step out and do good works of the gospel. You are main. You're just there. They were comfortable, complacent, self-satisfied, and secure in themselves and their wealth. But along with their reliance on the ways of the world, their spiritual health had gone downhill. Their material wealth was a shroud hiding a rotting corpse. And instead of the Lord being amongst them, encouraging them, building them up as they abided in him, their Lord was outside the church asking to be let in. And his reaction in verse 16 was, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The Greek actually has to vomit, to spew out with force. Not a pretty picture. In the reading from Joshua, where he leads the Israelites across the Jordan into the promised land, where had they come from? Forty years in the wilderness. 
Why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness after God led them out across the Red Sea? Because they had turned away from the Lord. God spewed them out of his mouth for 40 years until they turned back to him. What was the Babylonian exile? It was God spewing them out of his mouth until they came back to him. And Jesus is saying, for your heresy, your lack of cold or hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Continuing in verses 17 and 18, which is all one sentence in the Greek, so I'm reading from New English translation. Because you say, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you can become rich and white clothing, so you can be clothed and your shameful wickedness will not be exposed, and eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The church at Smyrna thought itself poor, but really was rich in faith. The Laodiceans boasted that they were rich, when in fact they were poor in faith measuring things by human standards instead of by spiritual values. By vomiting, vomiting them out of his mouth, he was going to test their true faith, that they might become what he wants them to become, repenting of their pride and humbling themselves before the Lord. The gold refined in fire. The Laodiceans could go to the market and purchase fine woolen garments, but that would not meet their real need. They needed the white garments of God's righteousness and grace, produced by fruitful gospel works. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Salvation means that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, put to our account. In God's eyes, he sees us through Christ's righteousness. But sanctification means that his righteousness is imparted to us. It's made part of our character and our conduct. We carry ourselves. We live as Christ's servants as he enables us, doing his will, producing gospel fruit, becoming more like him to God's glory. The Laodiceans were blind, not seeing the true reality living in a fool's paradise, proud of a church that was about to be rejected. The city of Laodicea exported a Phrygian powder that was then formed into a paste the consistency of dough and used as an eye salve. But that wasn't enough to cure their blindness. Peter teaches that when a believer is not growing in the Lord, his spiritual vision is affected. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Second Peter chapter 1, five, verses 5 to 9. If the Lord was outside the door of the church asking to be led in, then they were definitely not abiding in the Lord. They were naked of the Spirit, and they were blind to the Spirit. But after saying they were wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked, after saying he was going to spit them out of his mouth, he says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The same concept is found in the Old Testament in Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, and that Proverbs is quoted in Hebrews 12, 5 to 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. He still loved these lukewarm saints even though their love for him had grown cold. He planned to chastise them as proof of his love to bring them back to him. Verse 20 continues, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with him. This verse is used by some for evangelistic purchases, purposes. Look, Jesus is at the door. Open it and let him into your life. But for the unbeliever, Jesus is already inside the door of the kingdom. And the believer has to open the door and go in. Rather here, is talking to our brothers and sisters that have gone astray. And he says, I'm standing at the door of your church. This letter, so far, has been addressed to the whole church of Laodicea. But he says, if any one of you will open the door, I will restore our fellowship and communion together. We come together as an assembly in Christ's name but we are still responsible individually for our relationship with the Lord. We only assemble together in the Lord's name if individually we are abiding in him, in fellowship with him, in communion with him. Jesus closes this letter with, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he was glorified. When the Lord comes for us and gathers us with him in the clouds, that is the final step of the three-step process. When we acknowledge that Christ is saved and Lord, we are justified. His righteousness covers us. And as we live out our lives here, abiding in him through the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified. And when we rise to join Jesus in the crowds, in the clouds, we will be glorified. The Laodicean church was blind to its own needs and unwilling to face the truth. What about us as a congregation and as individuals? Honesty is the beginning of true blessing as we admit what we are, confess our sins, and receive from God all that we need. If we want God's best for our lives and churches, we must be honest with him and let God be honest with us. The letters to the seven churches are like a microscope given by God so that we might examine our own lives and ministries. Judgment is going to come to this world, but it first begins at God's house. But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, 16-17 in these letters, or at least five, we can find discouragement. But if our eyes are focused properly, let us instead find encouragement, or as from last week, opportunity, not obstacles. The Lord has given us these letters to draw us more fully to Him. Although many of us do not fit into the model of any particular church, but there are probably parts, good parts and bad parts, from all the churches that do apply to each of us. So let us put ourselves in prayer and Bible study under God's microscope, taking encouragement from his rebukes, his discipline, remembering that they are proof of his love for us. May the Lord help us to hear what the Spirit is saying today to the church and to the individuals in the churches.